Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, before we get started, I want to ask a favor. Uh, We have been nominated for a Webby, which apparently is a big deal. And I'd love for you to go vote for us. It actually takes 30 seconds. It's super easy. We put a link in the show notes so you can just go click there or go to 10percenthappier.com. And right on the top of the page, you can click a link that will take you right to the site where you can register and vote. I would be super appreciative. Would be awesome to win a Webby. I don't know why, but I think it would be awesome. I'll let you know after we win it. Hopefully we will win. Anyway, thank you for voting for us. Uh, And if you don't want to vote, that's cool, too. Now to the show. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Sure sign that I'm getting old. Uh, It feels like yesterday that the book 10% Happier came out, but actually it was five years ago. Five years ago. And uh, to celebrate my aging and the aging of all of us, we've got a fifth anniversary of 10% Happier that's about to come out very, very soon, actually, on April 16th. But if you want to pre-order it, you can go to hc.com slash happier. HarperCollins, hc.com slash happier. There's a bunch of new guided meditations in the back of the book from people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And you, if you buy the book, you can get audio versions of those meditations for free on the 10% Happier app. Of course, if you're a subscriber to the app, you'll get those meditations anyway. And I, I've written a new preface that will, of course, go at the front of, of this new book. So go check it out if you, uh, if you want. On the show this week, one of my colleagues at uh, the 10% Happier app company, Jay Michelson, Dr. Jay Michelson, uh, who is just who has just signed on as uh, the editor of Wisdom Content. What does that mean? Well, he is overseeing one, a, a new product that we're really excited about within the app, which is Talks. We used to, on the app, primarily do little videos and added audio meditations that is the bulk of our content, but we're also now moving into non-meditation content, and that's what these talks are. They're little five to ten minute zaps of wisdom that you can consume while you're brushing your teeth, walking to work, whatever. And I love this idea. Uh, I wish I could say it was mine. It wasn't. I love the idea of being able to use the app for something other than just meditation. Obviously, I love meditation, too. Uh, but it is so easy when you're a meditator to kind of lose track of, of why you're doing this thing. You can feel stupid after a while. And these talks, which will be on all sorts of issues are and from all sorts of teachers, some of them meditation teachers, some of them scientists, uh, some of them not having to do with meditation at all. As we grow this library, we'll be talking about all sorts of things. So Jay's in charge of that. And he writes our weekly newsletter, which is excellent. And the reason it's excellent is because he writes it. And if you want to sign up for it, it's called it's called Meditation Weekly, by the way. If you want to sign up for it, you can go to 10percenthappier.com slash blog. 10percenthappier.com slash blog. Uh, that's free. Uh, Jay is one of the <laughs> one of the most fascinating human beings I know, and his resume is a dazzlingly, dizzyingly diverse. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in Jewish thought from Hebrew, Hebrew University, a J.D. from Yale Law School, an M.F.A. from Sarah Lawrence, and a B.A. from Columbia. He has held visiting positions at Brown University, Yale, Harvard Divinity School, Boston University Law School. He's a rabbi. He's an author of six books. He uh, writes for The Daily Beast uh, and has been a commentator on NPR, MSNBC, and lots of other spots. 
Yeah, just a fascinating guy. If you want to hear his personal story from the start, you know, of how he got into meditation and what that did to his life, go back and listen to episode four, because he was one of the first guests on this podcast. Uh, but on this show, we're, we're, we're going to talk about a, a series of issues that uh, Jay is uniquely positioned to discuss. And they include what's it like to be a meditation teacher who's got a new baby at home uh, and is trying to keep up his me- mindfulness practice. Also, Jay's meditative imposter syndrome, which is totally fascinating. The overlap between politics and spirituality. I should have mentioned also that within Jay's work history, he's also uh, been an LGBT activist. Before that, he was a start. He was he was an entrepreneur. He's, this guy's done everything. Um, so he talks about the overlap uh, between politics and spirituality and how the two uh, can affect one another. He talks about meditation and sensuality, and he talks about his view of how meditation can have an impact on the long term viability of uh, our species. So a lot here with Jay, uh, a fascinating mind. Uh, so here we go, my friend Jay Michelson. Last time I saw you, you did not. Last time you were on this podcast, you did not have a baby. That is true. What's it like to be a, a meditation teacher with a baby? Well, it's funny. Do you was, handle it better than the rest of us? No, of course not. Uh, I think so. I actually think so. I actually have no idea how people become parents without some kind of self care practice or some kind of mindfulness practice, whatever it is. Um, just because I think there's so many opportunities to get angry at your partner <laughs> in a parenting journey not at the kid no i mean the well my kid's 15 months so she's still you know i can't you can't blame someone who's still developing the physical capacity for moral responsibility <laughs> um no I, I i never get angry at her but you know there's every every meal every timing of everything every it's it's an opportunity for disagreement and so and it's stressful you know i think it's really Somebody was talking to me about that metaphor of seeing people like little hurricanes um, and meaning what is a hurricane really? It It's not really a thing, right? It's created by the conditions that are there. There's the high pressure here and the low pressure there. Footnote, I don't know anything about hurricanes. Uh, <laughs> but, the, you know, a storm is just – is is the the product of all of these circumstances that are, that are arising and we're all like that. And um, when there's anger arising, that's because the conditions for anger are there and when there's this and that. And so that's been really helpful for myself and for my partner, Paul, and less so for the baby. But, you know, that just seeing that we're all these hurricanes and just getting out of the way uh, has been really helpful. And um, but I think I have nothing really creative to say. It's it's just like every parent says, the most amazing thing, the most tiring thing, um, you know, and the, and the most sort of draining in any way, but just the power of all of that oxytocin and and love hormone has just been overpowering. And it's actually made me really, I, I did an article for the Daily Beast about this. It's made me really angry at the exploitation of parental love and fear for some political gain. And all that happens on all sides, you know, because it just, we're so barely rational as it is as human beings. Here, I feel the least rational. Um, just watching my mind go off into worry things, you know, imagining the worst possible accidents, health problems, whatever, you know, you hear a thump and you're like, that's it. The baby's fallen off of the table and, you know, we're going to the hospital now. And that's all, you know, that's all hardwired in that's evolutionary stuff. And, and to see that kind of fear cynically exploited, even just by capitalism, it's annoying, but to see it exploited by, by politicians, so, but definitely feeling that, definitely experiencing the roller coaster of uh, 
addiction and and addiction to the love hormone and addiction to the 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 delight being with her uh and the fear also two things to react to well, first when you were talking about before that you've nothing to say that's original i remember at so my child's four so i'm a little we're a little past your this your stage at 15 months i remember thinking early on especially as a writer and we're both writers the uh, one annoying thing about being a parent is there is literally nothing original to say. All of the cliches are true. Every single one of them, even the contradictory ones, they're all true. But it, it, it's, it's a it's a very helpless feeling because you're stuck in a Hallmark card. I find, <laughs> I find it liberating, though, because uh, there's very little temptation to turn my daughter into material. I mean, I guess that's what I'm doing right now <laughs> in this moment. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like a burden has been, you know, sometimes, I mean, when I went on, went off to Nepal and sat on long meditation retreats, when I, you know, went to Burning Man before people used to go to Burning Man and have experiences that not everybody has, there was just so much desire to write about it and share it and talk about it and, and ego also, but also just, just enthusiasm. Here, there's none. I have no enthusiasm to write about parenting. Um, I have a few thoughts about being a gay parent and an older parent, but I feel certain that those have also been blogged to death. <laughs> like I'm sure that's out there too. I just haven't bothered to read it. And uh, so it's actually been really kind of pure in that way. It's It's been free from artifice in a way that's that's really delightful. And just being present, you know, this, you know, the the total presence of just a little kid learning to open and close a, a door or or looking at a, a piece of paper or something is just uh, remarkable. You're a better man than me because I'm exploiting the crap out of my son and writing all about him in my <laughs> next book. So um, uh, I admire your restraint. There was another thing you said earlier that I wanted to react to, but before I react to it, I, um, I had a question that came up in my mind in the last, in the midst of the last paragraph you uttered, which is, I just wonder, does it make you... I'm not sure this is true for me, so I don't know why I'm asking it. But does having a kid in its utter unoriginality make you feel connected to the larger human pageant in any way? That's that's interesting. I, I think I think the answer is yes, in a way. I, I think there is. Um, you know, I've joked to friends that my uh, daughter is a FOMO baby. She was born out of my fear of missing out. You know, everybody says, oh, this is the most love you'll ever experience. It's the most amazing thing. And I, I want to take that ride. So here I am. Um, and there's some truth to that, actually. But uh, I, I think I think you're right. I think there is a sort of connector uh, that's there. But I'm also I'm so grateful. There are challenges in being an older parent. I'm 47 now. But um, I'm really grateful to have like lived a lot. I don't have a lot of FOMO or what I'm missing out on now. Like I don't care that I spend – Friday and Saturday night at home. I don't care that um, I even don't care that I can't really go on meditation retreat, although it would be delightful to do so. Um, there's nowhere I need to travel right now. So, I, you know, all of those things, plus just being a little wiser and more compassionate. I mean, we could I guess it'd be good advertising to ascribe that to meditation, but it might just be getting older and being less invested in stuff and and um it's the it yeah all that simple stuff just like Warren Zevon said on David Letterman right enjoy every sandwich this is when he was diagnosed <laughs> with a terminal illness you know being a little bit older and having friends and peers certainly parents die um, just really recenters like I've never I don't know if never that's a tall order but I've almost never had a moment with with the baby where we're doing something utterly mundane 
uh, playing with you know a simple toy or rereading a book for the twentieth time. I've never had the moment where I've said, "Oh, what a waste of time!" <laughs> like it definitely doesn't feel that way. Um, and I think I was worried about that a little bit because uh, I, I I'm still pretty focused on some aspects of career and and on having a lot of experiences, but actually. It just feels like the best possible use of time. And it is one of the great cliches, which you know now better than I do, is, you know, it does go by so quickly. I guess I didn't realize that babyhood is like a one-year proposition, yeah. you know, and then they're toddlers, and that's mm-hmm. different. And I don't miss babyhood that year. Uh, you know, it's fun to be where Lila's at. She's 15 months right now. But, um, I, you know, I'd realize it now. It, it really is true, that cliche, that things go by so quickly. And I have friends with teenagers, and they say the same thing. Yeah, and I I was struck when I when we had our son, how many people told me either in person or on social media, enjoy every moment or cherish every moment. And I thought, okay, is this just a sort of platitude that people just vomit up because that's the thing you say in this kind of moment, or is it maybe represent a some sort of collective remorse over having rushed through the every their ch- their children's childhood mm. or is it like really good advice it turns out i mean it's maybe a good mix, advice. But it's definitely yeah. good advice it's definitely good advice and um i'm just so grateful that we're financially and and just otherwise able to be there as much as we are uh, my partner's a full-time dad and um you know i'm able because of my work to work at home a couple of days a week and that's great and, and being there is just such a treat you know and then we're able again financially and just in our lifestyles to be around on the weekends and to spend those days and to not uh, i'm just really she i feel like she's lucky and and i'm grateful and it is um you know maybe i'll break my rule about not not writing about her because I, I there there are now several good books on being a mindful parent and also not teaching mindfulness in a formal practice to to kids but just teaching them to be aware and awake and mindful and present moment focused and aware of their emotions as they come up and things like that. So there's a lot of really good wisdom out there. Um, just from an almost poetic or literary perspective, I'm, I'm interested in that and, and the way in which, uh, I don't know, a former crazy meditator with a long beard uh, is happy being a dad. It feels actually very connected for me. You used to have a long beard. Only yeah yeah so uh, some great pictures of me online I think I put them online of when I was on retreat you don't it's funny because you know in the Buddhist world the the real hardcore people shave their heads right and they're like all bald but I felt like that was the only time where I was going to spend six months basically off the grid and didn't matter what I looked like and I looked pretty weird. <laughs> the other thing you said that I wanted to react to and this is a sort of a combination of meditation and parenthood it is on the fear thing so one of my favorite words from the Buddha's language of Pali or the ancient Indian language is, and I write about it a lot is propancha, which is these little movies we make. Something happens like some sort of data point in the present moment. And then we just make these phantasmagoric movies about some awful thing that's going to happen as a, as a result of whatever little actual thing happened. So, but I find that as a parent, even now, four years in, constantly i'm in the bathroom with my son i'm just constantly seeing him slipping and slamming his head against the concrete corner of the wall we're in the playing in the ocean he gets sucked out and eaten by a shark it's just this (laughs) these movies are happening all the time and i don't can't figure out whether the meditative the self-awareness as that's come about as a consequence of a decade of a little bit of meditation 
is good in that I'm not maybe it's not acting on me in a subterranean way or it's bad because I'm in more pain because I'm seeing this stuff. Well, surely it's good. I mean, we're talking right now on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I live in Park Slope. These are two of the epicenters of helicopter parenting and neurotic overprogramming of kids. And I think I can't help but think just being aware of it. You know, a lot of people who are over helicoptering and over worrying and over this and over that. It's not that they really want to. Um, it's that they're not conscious of how how that's happening, how those processes are happening. Um, yeah, I think I think if you're neurotic about it and, and aware of your own neurosis, it may be less pleasant for you, but it's better for your kid, right? Because it's not going out on them. I've noticed a lot of those things. I you know I bike around New York City a lot and. Now I start thinking that's a really bad idea, and I imagine myself getting hit by trucks on every bike ride, which then contributes to more fear while you're riding, which doesn't make you a better bike rider generally. So it's not that it's always helpful, um, but I can't imagine that uh, just being aware of any moment if there's anger that comes up and suddenly the stakes are so much higher. And, and I, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty angry household. I was very fortunate, very privileged. My material needs were taken care of. Both my parents, two parents, both my parents loved me. Typical kind of middle class to upper middle class American upbringing. But culturally and psychologically, yeah, there was a lot of anger and yelling back and forth and at me. And, and I just don't. Who knows? You know, it's easy with a toddler who doesn't speak yet to talk about when you when you get angry and when you don't. But I just I feel really fortunate that anytime something like that's coming up, I know to take some time out. People yell at toddlers. People yell at babies. When babies scream, uh, when I remember when my baby would scream, I felt homicidal. You know, like I mean, I wasn't going to act on it, but I was a. The, You're a terrible person. Yeah, I, I am never, a terrible I person. never thought that. <laughs> It's actually true that I didn't think that, but you're not it really a so terrible much person. Thinking it, it was the visceral feeling of it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. he's screaming, he won't stop screaming. I don't know why he's screaming. I'm alone. There's nothing I can do, and the noise is going into the reptile part of my brain that is just sending out like ripples of of incalculable rage, and like it's a horrible feeling. Interesting. And so, I don't know if you're calm at 15 months, that augurs well. For the rest of this situation, well, also, my baby is also more awesome than okay. Most. Well, yeah, uh, so that, it's a low bar because my kid was <laughs> tough. Is tough, and I just was listening to you on another podcast episode, calling him the least meditative dude on the planet. <laughs> I stand by phrase. it. I hope that's not the title of his memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, the son of Mister Meditation Guru. Yeah, <laughs> could, yeah. could, that could be the title. Mm -hmm. No, I think when those moments happen for me, it's funny how people react differently to the same stress. Um, I definitely get a stream of reptilian brain emotion, but it's much more like sadness. Can I do this? Oh, my God. Fear. Pan. Like it's never I don't think it's once been anger, but it's definitely been, oh, my God, get me out of here. This is way too much for me. And um, I've never left the scene in that moment, but uh, it hasn't been. Yeah. You know, poop happens <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The, in in emailing back and forth with you about possible things to discuss in this podcast, you said something that I don't fully understand but seemed really interesting to me, so I want to ask you about it, which is that you have some sort of meditative imposter syndrome. Does that relate in any way to the things to the foregoing, or is that a completely different subject? No, it definitely relates. That's why you did such a skillful segue. Um, it's funny that I, I've always thought of myself as not having imposter syndrome. And sidebar – 
you know, now we're working together at 10% Happier, the company, and I'm producing some content for the company. One of the things that we're working on is a piece about imposter syndrome. And in its classic form, imposter syndrome is about largely, mostly it's about career. Like you've gotten to a certain point and you feel like you've been faking it your whole time. And if you, once you get exposed as a fraud, actually you have no idea how to be a journalist. You've just been making it up. You're surrounded by real journalists, but you are not one of them. And it's funny, as we were doing, developing that content for 10% Happier um, and really talking to folks who really, it's really part of their lives, I realized how it's not part of my life. I have the opposite. I have a sense of entitlement. Like, I think I can do things that I really cannot do. Uh, and that's gotten me in a lot of trouble many, many times. So maybe that's a gender thing or maybe it's just me. I don't know. But it's – but. Um, where I do have it, though, and I and I haven't really thought about imposter syndrome a lot until these last few months because it's not part of my everyday. Uh, where I do have it is just in general, like feeling as though it's a it's two two parallel and complementary imposter syndromes. So one of them is I'm sure very familiar to you, which is you know here we are talking about meditation, but we both get upset by stuff and and um you know are, are we are we full of poop uh, you know are we are we just deluding ourselves and we're really at a very, very beginning level and we have no business giving anyone advice or, you know, I think it's funny that you continually to say, you continue to say that you're not a meditation teacher, which that's not true. Uh, but certainly for me, it's true that I am a meditation teacher. I lead retreats and I teach uh, on the app and elsewhere. Um, so, so, so there's that, you know, in a moment of anger or, uh, or pain or sadness or self doubt, um, now there's this extra layer of imposter syndrome on top of it. Like, what am I doing teaching this stuff? I still have to, I'm still at square one myself. I never stay in that space for too long because I know a few things. I know I've come from one place on a spectrum to somewhere else and I'm way healthier and happier uh, than I was. I also know that being still on the path is a value to my students, that I don't put myself out there as fully enlightened. I've met some pretty enlightened people. I've also met some teachers who claim to be fully enlightened who aren't. Uh, I'm very glad that there's no doubt in my mind that that is not me. I don't have to wonder, am I fully enlightened? <laughs> I don't have to. That doesn't come up a lot. So I know that that's true also. I actually personally gravitate more to those kinds of teachers myself when I'm looking for for uh, for someone to, you know, to teach me. Um, so I don't stay in that spot of um, feeling like a, a, a fraud. But it comes up once in a while. But I also have this complementary imposter syndrome where I sort of feel like a fraud, a fake normal person. Um, in a lot of ways, the the me that's the most authentic seeming, and I don't think it really is authentic because I don't think there's a me to be authentic. But what has the most valence of authenticity are some of my weirdest parts, uh, whether it's the long meditation retreats or whether it's like my – interesting life with entheogens or psychedelics or whether it's, you know, past interesting lives, uh, in the realm past of interesting lives, not, not past lives. Okay. I know you have Buddhists on this show. Yeah. I didn't mean to past lives, <laughs> <laughs> right? I just meant past careers, past parts of phases of my life. I feel like I've lived several lives already just in these 47 years. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe past lives too, but that's not what I meant. Yeah. Just past phases of my life where, um, where I feel really at home, even though that's not where I'm living anymore. So whether it's teaching energetic practices at Burning Man that are very intense and probably a little too much to handle even for um, a podcast conversation, I feel really at home there more than I feel at home being in a normal, in normal land. Mm. Um, and so I sometimes 
feel like uh, like that kind of imposter. L- last little piece for my graduate work, I have a PhD in religion. I, I studied a um, kind of a false messiah who also had this very strange multi-staged career. I mean, he was a messianic cult leader in the in the 18th century, mid 18th century. Um, was then imprisoned for a while, uh, and then after getting out of prison, sort of passed himself off as a a charlatan, as a fake baron living under an assumed name in a castle and pretending to be normal outwardly. And uh, I don't think that's why I was drawn to study this person, but it definitely is something I resonate with. I I just want you to unpack that a little bit more. What is it? So you're right now sitting here in a button-down shirt. You have... Uh, your but it's work, a black button-down shirt. Black, yeah. Okay, so fine. spiritual. You, you you would fit in at a Smith at the the Smiths concert or whatever. <laughs> but um, I was trying you, to fit in at the monastery. <laughs> so you 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 know you look pretty conventional. You have some conventional jobs. Uh, one of them being at ten percent happier. You you write at the Daily Beast, and yeah, that's where I feel imposter syndrome. Okay, all of that, all of that. Yeah, it all feels sort of fake to me. And what would feel realer? Um, flashing back to big opening moments in practice where the mind settled out of this continuum of experience and into the unconditioned. Put that in English. <laughs> That's as good as I can say it. Uh, you know, there's there's a profound letting go that happens at various points in practice, also happens not in practice, also happens with the right kinds of, of medicines, of psychedelics and others. Um, and there's there are just different ways to be. And some of those feel deeply real for me but those peak experiences are they scalable can you live your whole life in that space you can learn to flash back faster and faster and faster so what for you would a truly authentic and i I don't really love that word but like what would a truly authentic life look like i think it looks like the one i'm leading i think i don't feel i don't it's not inauthentic to be writing uh, angry Daily Beast articles about the latest uh, judicial nominee from this administration. That's just the dance. That's part of that's part of how I unfold. Um, it just feels sort of funny because I I feel like I feel like a little bit like a Clockwork Orange. You know, in the Clockwork Orange in the book in the movie, that metaphor is meant to be. So it's an orange on the outside. It looks like an orange, but inside are all these gears, and so the state has learned to. Uh, uh, kind of get inside the brain using you know the, the techniques in a clockwork orange to kind of have a simulation of a normal human being, even though it's not actually a normal human being. So he's still Alex inside. He's still a he's still a uh, a would be criminal, but because he's been conditioned by you know by by all the uh, mind control, he looks totally normal from the outside. He could even be putting on uh, a black shirt and a button down shirt with a normal haircut. <laughs> So in some ways, it's imposter syndrome, but it's authentic imposter syndrome. Yeah, I guess that's right. I feel like I'm pretending to be an imposter. (laughs) (laughs) But I've wondered about it a lot. I mean, I think I I think, you know, when I was more intensive around practice before I was in my current relationship, which is coming up on 10 years, certainly before uh, the baby was born. Um, also, you know, I was just a lot more lonely and also a lot more open to maybe the spiritual path is what I want to do. And, um, I, I know some people who went more in that direction. It's funny that I don't think, I can't think of anyone who really went off the deep end and stayed there, you know, stayed in a monastic life. But I certainly know people who don't live in New York city and don't have two jobs and, uh, and, you know, aren't living the kind of life that I'm living. Um, 
And I've wondered what the pull is in that direction. On bad days, I feel like it's just conditioning from my childhood. And, you know, my mother wanted me to go to law school. And so I did. On better days, it doesn't feel that way. On better days, it feels like I just love both and. Um, if I ever do write my memoir, that's the proposed title for it. Uh, I just love both having both. And you clearly do too. Otherwise, you would have quit your day job and just done 10% happier all the time yourself. So that's why one of the reasons I love talking with you is, is there's this pull in these different directions. And we've both gotten far enough along in our worldly careers where it's exciting. And there's 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 freshness there and there's a sense of connectedness. When I was feeling bad about my journalism career a few months ago, it was because I felt like I was preaching to the choir, the left-wing choir, because uh, you know we're so segmented now in terms of what media we consume in America that I was like, I'm not even reaching the people in the middle who are open to think about stuff. I'm only reaching the diehards who want to click on my articles. Um, but then the choir really sang in the midterm election, you know, and there's actually value to enlarging the choir and in preaching to the choir and in rallying the choir. Cause I'm an opinion writer. I'm not a real journalist. I write opinion. So I get to have views and, um, and I get paid for what I would talk, you know, say uh, or normally, which is here's what I think about stuff. So I, I actually felt reconnected to that. And, and so we can see on the worldly side that there's a lot of like noble uh, goals and 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 pulls in that direction. And of course, there's ego and money and fame and all that stuff too. Not that those are necessarily bad things, but in addition to all those, there's really an excitement in being in the world. And it feels really, for me, there's a toxicity to it, but it feels like there's also a responsibility because I have my uh, various left-wing views. Like it doesn't feel like now's the time to unplug. Um, it feels like now's the time to get serious about ethical responsibility. Which leads me to another thing. It gets me, it puts me in the, in in mind of something else that was on our list of things to, to talk about. I should say it's really your list, but we mutually agreed upon it. It's which the royal is, we, the royal we. Um, the overlap between politics and spirituality. Uh, what do you mean by that? So I think for me, there's there's always this. Um, there are these two. There are these poles. And uh, I think on the left in particular, there's a sort of critique of spirituality that it's narcissistic, capitalistic, um, feel-good stuff. And it's helping the privileged feel even more happy. Um, and it's similar to religion as the opiate of the masses, except mm. it's not quite the masses. It's it's the people who should – you shouldn't be so happy. <laughs> uh, I've, I've not believed that, that critique for a long time, probably about 15 years, uh, just because I've seen that it's not true. Um, I've seen that the interface for people who are doing a lot of activist work or even in just living their lives but are plugged in and, and being responsible, that there's an aspect of recharge that's necessary, self-care and maintenance, um, that also waking up to more empathy leads to political consequences. Um, and I don't mean that in a partisan sense. I mean, there's a certain there are certain views you can disagree or, or agree or disagree about various policy issues, but – it's harder and harder to turn a blind eye to oppression when you're trying to open your eyes more. Do, do you think – are you such a diehard lefty that you think you can't be truly empathetic, compassionate, spiritually awakened on any level and hold conservative views? No, I don't think that. Um, but I think it's harder. 
<laughs> because we, we have to check and see so often, you know, there's that phrase that people say, like, check your privilege, like, check your privilege. Like, we have to check and see so often when my, if my interests are in line with an upper bracket tax cut. It is conceivable. Actually, that's a pretty good example because there's actually really no sound economics that says that that trickle down economics really works, that get cutting taxes on the top 0.5% actually helps the economy. But not so every that's a good example. Not every conservative would no, say that's a good so idea. So that's why you can still be a good ethical conservative. But that's a good example for me of where our blindness around or my interests, uh, my, my desire to have my own interests fulfilled makes it harder to have that view. So suppose I really were a compassionate conservative, which do exist, obviously. Um, I would need to like double check so many of these points of view. You know, is it really true that any kind of gun regulation is is an abrogation of either the Second Amendment or human dignity. You know, so I mean, you just sort of go. I don't. I don't think that really holds up. And if you look at the suffering that's caused, first by far the most gun violence in America is, are suicides and accidents. So that, and then also shootings and mass shootings. And I think you kind of go down the laundry list of conservative positions, and 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 they get harder and harder to hold. But sure, you know, maybe it's more compassionate to have a somewhat more strict immigration policy, I guess. Um, and we can come up with reasons why that's true. Uh, but it's hard for me to think in any world of ethical awareness why it's okay to separate children from their parents at the border and put them in cages. So some some views survive and some don't. And then I think you're left, you know, the folks who I know who are more compassionate conservative are the ones who are who feel like they don't have a party right now um, because their their party of choice uh, has been hijacked by a, a, a faction that's neither compassionate nor conservative. And so, you know, these are the sort of David Brooks's and Bill Crystal's of the world and uh, Matt Lewis and people like that who are caring and kind people and who have a set of ideas about policies. Um, and that set of policies aligns more with the Republican Party but they can't stomach being in a party where the leader is a demagogue and and has these rallies of hate and uh, is manifestly rage driven and and uneducated and corrupt. And so, at this moment, I think it's really hard to for those folks. I'm glad I'm not one of them. Anybody who's you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't polled our audience on this score, but if there are people in the audience who either like Trump or like him better than whatever they b believe the alternative could be. And I think there's a large group of people who fall into the latter category. They may at this point not want to hear anything from you on this subject, but let me ask it anyway, <laughs> which is what kind of advice do you have about in this era, which is so angry and where we can't even sort of agree on a stipulate to a common set of facts uh, upon which to debate what, what as putting your meditation teacher hat back on, what what advice would you have for navigating this sanely? Well, I'll speak from where I am. I mean, I see the same phenomenon on the left. I mean, there's sort of a – I'll take an example of a lot of friends of mine who are, you know, looking at the various Democratic primary folks. So two of the candidates, Kamala Harris and uh, Amy Klobuchar, used to be prosecutors. And it's hard to be a liberal prosecutor. <laughs> you know, you're part of a system, a criminal justice system that's shot through with structural inequality and – and racism and and these are two people who I think did a, a decent job of that uh, and yet there's a sort of rage machine on the left that cancels people for any perceived uh, sin 
even if it's uh, and and isn't looking at the nuance of what would it look like to be Kamala Harris is trying to call herself a progressive uh, prosecutor. I don't know if that's true or not, but what would that look like? Um, what would it be possible to sort of see that there are different ways to uh, advance justice in the world other than the one that you know that that the most left wing person likes? So I think that's true on the right as well. I, I think it's I think it's a really challenging moment for thoughtful conservatives and i get it and i don't and again i'm not i have plenty of republican friends and well a couple of friends and relatives and uh it's a challenging moment again i i I can't imagine what it's like to have a sense that there's no one who speaks for you you know maybe michael bloomberg or something but but that there's no one on the on the national stage who, who speaks that way um but i think it has to be that to me calls for conversations with folks who are to your right. If there's someone who's a compassionate conservative and a thoughtful conservative and they have ardent Trump supporters, then maybe it's in their, in their close circle. Maybe it's correcting the record. Maybe it's pointing out that the rate of immigrant crime is lower than the rate of crime by citizens. Maybe it's just when some nasty meme about, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez goes around just noting it and not being okay with it. But but is it you know I, I did some work with this really interesting group, uh, Better Angels, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm still hoping to get their one of their one of their folks on the podcast because I I think their approach is really interesting, which is don't try to change minds, actually because that, that just won't work. Try to achieve what they call accurate disagreement. I think that's a very interesting approach, but you seem to be advocating something different. No, I'm totally in for, I'm totally up for that. Um, you know, I see that the most on uh, on Israel Palestine because uh, you know I, I worked professionally in the Jewish community for over ten years, and right now, past lives, yeah, exactly. Right now is a particular. It's always a particularly stressful moment, but right now, in particular, because it's become partisanized, uh, the Israel issue, and accurate disagreement would be great. Um, if we just are accurate about what's happening, facts on the ground, I can't go to an Israel hawk and say with any degree of certainty that I'm right and they're wrong. I th- I'm pretty sure I'm right and they're wrong, but I, I can't, you know, maybe maybe their set of assumptions about the quote unquote other side is correct. Maybe their ideas about the need for a strong Israel are correct. Those are, and but I can be we, I can demand for both of us uh, accuracy about the number of people being affected, what the policies actually are, what are the costs of those policies, what are the benefits of those policies, what do, you know, what do settlements actually look like, what do roads look like, all those kinds of things. Um, but it's funny that, that even to me, accurate disagreement is too much on the rational level. Um, another of my past lives uh, was spending several years as a professional LGBT activist. And the data that that the movement got over and over again was that facts didn't matter at all. They didn't matter for religious people if you quoted the Bible. They didn't matter for secular people if you talked about rights and equal rights. What only mattered was just showing up and being a human being. And the only effective uh, factor that moved people on LGBT issues uh, was just knowing someone, LGB or T. And if they couldn't know someone directly, then at least through media, like literally watching Will and Grace or Ellen or whatever. Um, it was coming to know people's humanity that actually shifted them. Um, and it definitely is true that on both sides right now, there's an aggressive dehumanization campaign. I just don't think that 
and maybe I'm just blind here, but I just don't think that there's quite as much money in it as there is on the left as there is on the right. There, even on MSNBC, you don't see uh, conservatives pilloried the way you see liberals talked about on Tucker Carlson or uh, or on really. Fox. I mean, because I listen to Morning Joe in the morning and or uh, some of the Vox programming and. Well, maybe less so about Vox, but you know, the, the, it's it's a it's all bemoaning. But is is it really going after what uh, the people, or is it going after the leaders? It's Trump one thing for sure. Sure, that's fine. I, that's that's no, I don't mean that. I mean like the people. I mean when Fox is talking about effete New York intellectuals oh, 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 and coastal yeah. elites. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that. I don't hear them going after Trump voters. I mean, on the contrary, it feels like there's been this after 2016, there's been this introspection of where did we go wrong? And but doesn't that how have did a we kind possible? Of, doesn't that have a kind of and condescending air to it? I think it's the opposite. I have a lot of uh, friends who are people of color who are pretty offended that we're like bending over backwards trying to understand the white working class when in fact – you know, expressed attitudes of racism were the best predictor of whether the folks were, were were supporting Trump or not. I know I, I actually see it as the opposite. This like I actually think there's a tremendous amount of attempt to sort of understand not maybe the Duck Dynasty crowd, but folks who, like you said, uh, saw two alternatives and and picked the lesser of two evils. And I certainly understand the profound. Uh, I think I hope I understand the profound dislocations that are wrought by globalization, by technology, um, also the challenges of multiculturalism. I grew up in a very white environment where there was not a lot of Spanish spoken, even though I grew up in Tampa, Florida, which had a huge uh, Latino population. Um, and I grew up with casual racism and I grew up with all of my pop star idols except for maybe Michael Jackson, who's now fallen from grace, uh, you know, being white faces and stuff like So I get that there's a change and I get that that's difficult. And I, I really do. Um, and I get that I have, as a certain kind of an outsider, less attachment to a kind of American identity that's really uh, rich and juicy. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see a similar empathy effort on the right uh, I see a lot of, and again, not with people. I mean, leaders. I mean, I mean, the media on the right and and political leaders on the right to really understand that coastal elites want the same things that we do. We want a a compassionate America where everyone has a fair shake. I, I don't see that rhetoric coming from uh, the media on the right. D- given the toxicity that's out there and right now, would is it naive to think meditation could help in some measurable way? No. Um, but what way is, what way does it help in? Um, you know, so for me, so when I was doing activist work, I've told the story a bunch in, in books of mine. Um, there was one time I wrote a book called God versus gay, the religious case for equality. And the argument of that book was that the majority of Jewish and Christian, mostly Christian religious values supported full inclusion and equality for LGBT people. So the opposite of what, you know, often on is depicted, uh, certainly in the news. So at one speaking event, uh, I was talking about uh, talking about the book, and someone interrupted me, shouted from the back, basically a heckler, uh, and said, "What about bestiality?" So what what that meant was, well, if we allow two men or two women to get married or have a relationship, you know, what's next? So that's a profoundly offensive question, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, it assumes that I can't tell the difference between the love I have for my partner uh, and the lust that someone might have for a sheep or you know, a goat or, or to even put them on the, on the same, on a spectrum. Right. 
That's right. And so it's it's a profoundly ignorant and offensive question. So in that moment, um, I was in front of about 100 people at the time. I was actually flushed. I was pretty angry um, that that had even been asked. But um, there was a moment of mindfulness in there. I mean, I hate to sound cliche about it, but there really was. There was a little spaciousness in the mind in that interaction. Uh, and it was clear what I needed to do. Tactically, I knew what I needed to do. I just needed to be the more reasonable and compassionate person in the room. That's how I was going to win. Because I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to try to win the heckler. Who cares about him, right? I care about you know the movable middle in those other hundred people. So probably half of them are on my side already, but some are not because of that particular audience. Um, and so I just paused and I, I thought tactically about what's the right, what's the most effective thing to say here, and I said it and so forth. But um, that moment happens over and over again at everyone's Thanksgiving table, <laughs> right? Um, even when we know. We want to be tactical or compassionate or empathetic or even if we just want to win the freaking argument. Like we we don't even do what we know will win the argument, right, half the time because we're too upset. Um, so I think actually if we're looking at lowering the toxicity level, um, yeah, I think, I think it actually really does help. But early in this conversation, you admitted to Finling the, the first aspect of your Janice-faced <laughs> uh, imposter syndrome was that you're a meditation teacher who loses his school sometimes. So how could I'm playing devil's advocate here. So how could meditation help given the level of anger and the fact that most people aren't ever going to practice as much as you? Yeah. Well, Dan, you've had a lot of good ideas over your career, but the title of 10% happier is in my opinion, by far the best one. Right. And because that it, implicit in that title is you're not a hundred percent and you're still going to mess up a lot of the time. Um, I definitely mess up less than I used to. That story about the God versus gay tour is an example where I didn't mess up. Um, I nailed it <laughs> in that moment uh, and uh, got a bunch of applause and it was great. It was, a, it was actually a really good moment um, as I engaged. And uh, there's definitely, in my experience, more at, you know, there's at least 10% of those more. Um, just being able to sit with anger and not respond uh, to... You know, for many years, my family had a uh, – we would have Passover with another family that had hardcore uh, pre-Trump Trump people. They were tea partiers back then. Um, and a couple of them would try to bait me and they would say things that were pretty insulting um, that if I said to them, you know, I don't, I don't think they'd go over very well. And, you know, I'm not superhuman, but 10% less engagement in an unskillful way? Sure. Um, and um, – I see that again and again. and uh, But that's that piece. There's also the building resilience piece. Um, I know a lot of activists who burn out, and I definitely think we should all regulate our exposure to the news. Um, no offense. You know, but, uh, you know, so knowing how to do that, knowing when not to click, knowing how to stay healthy and stay sane, not to, cl to plug our ears and cover our eyes and just go to my happy place, but maybe do that a little bit of the time allows us to show up for the folks who don't have that luxury, who don't have that opportunity. You know, if I have the opportunity to, to, to quit and unplug, that's a privilege. That's not available if I'm undocumented. That's not available if I'm trans and trying to just go to the freaking bathroom, right? So I'm fortunate in, a, in the position that I'm in that I have the luxury to be able to turn off the metaphorical TV set, you know, to unplug, uh, unplug Facebook for a moment. 
So if I have that luxury, to me, I have a responsibility to do the kinds of self-care that enable me to show up for the people who don't have that luxury. Because however crappy I may be feeling about the toxicity of some environment, I can guarantee it's less crappy than my trans friends are feeling when they get heckled on the subway, which happens all the time. There's like a blank check that the bigots and am I allowed to say on the podcast? We're going to believe it. There you go. They feel like they have carte blanche to be all the time whether it's people of color on the subway or people who are gender nonconforming on the, I'm just thinking, using the subway as an example, because that, you know, it happens so often and it doesn't rise to the level of violence, right? Or, you know, there's carte blanche that people on the far right feel like now they can spray swastikas on college campuses and in synagogues, the synagogue where, where my wedding was celebrated was defaced with a swastika. Like we're living in a, in a time of, true toxicity that again i don't in this case i don't think is reciprocal i think it's all almost all on one side well let me push you on that because there is there is toxicity on the left yeah there is i was what's the leftist swastika that got painted on a temple uh, i don't know if it's a swastika but let me give you an example i'm not gonna i'm not gonna compare it to a swastika you're comparing something to the holocaust (laughs) ladies and gentlemen dan harris just compared (laughs) something to the holocaust Let's like, talk, let's what's talk the rule? About, what's the rule on the internet? Godwin's law. Godwin's you law. You immediately lose the convers- the argument when you compare something to Hitler or the Holocaust. Okay, so I was doing a story on Ben Shapiro, who is, I think, a very interesting young conservative. Oh, he's a Jew um, as well. Uh, Keep a wearing conservative commentator says a lot of things that are. Uh, let's just say controversial, but he says also things that are thought provoking and whatever, whatever you think of what he says, he certainly has a right to say it. And I went to cover a speech he gave at the university of Utah. And there was a, there were a group of protesters out there with the avowed goal of shutting him down. And I said to one of them, what about the first amendment? And he said, I don't think that's a relevant document. All right, here's the story. So yeah, that protester is an idiot. But I've been invited to speak on does to do- dozens of college campuses over my long and illustrious career. That is not an open forum. It is a forum of promotion. It is a forum of the campus or the group saying, this is somebody worth hearing. Now, Ben Shapiro may or may not be one of those people. Um, but it's certainly reasonable to take the view that he is not worth hearing because he says hate speech. So one could take the view, the reasonable view, uh, that First Amendment notwithstanding, and that comment, again, it was a stupid comment, that this is somebody who does not deserve to be promoted by my campus and given that place of honor, let alone the honorarium, but even the place of honor. That's what those protests are about. He has a larger platform than I have, and he, ha- and he has a plenty, of, plenty of opportunities to speak his views. Uh, and the question there is whether the University of Utah should lend its auspicious whatever honor uh, to him. And I think there's a good argument that they shouldn't. But there, was there a might riot be a good at, argument that they should. There was a riot at Berkeley when this kid spoke. You know, I mean, like there. So riot's an interesting word. You know, I think when you're trying to shut down, let's let's say you're of the view that this is somebody who's spouting hate speech, which yeah. is not your view. But let's say that is your view. So now we're trying to shut down hate speech. So now it's just a question of tactics. And I think reasonable people can disagree as I, to what I, the right tactics are to I, shut that down. I don't know if it's my view that he's not that what he's saying is not hate speech. I'm open to the debate. In fact, I got into the debate with him on the air. I, I have real questions about the things he's saying. I just think 
there is the First Amendment. I don't think there's the First Amendment when we're talking about an institution lending an honor to someone. The First Amendment, of no, course, that's a fair go that's out a fair to a street argument. corner and say right. your thing. Yeah. That's, that's the First Amendment. You know, second, there's not a symmetry between fascists and antifa, between fascists and anti-fascists. I'm not calling Ben Shapiro a fascist. He's not one. Um, but there's not a symmetry between one person saying hateful stuff and another person trying to shut down the person saying hateful stuff. It kind of goes back to a meditative issue for me, which is bias, right? One of the so there are these isms out there in that are the biggest problems in our culture, in my view: sexism, racism, tribalism. And so I've found it very interesting as somebody who's used meditation to wake up to some of his biases. That oh yeah, maybe it's actually interesting to go listen to different points of view. To me, it's actually it comes out of a space of curiosity and trying to actually challenge some of the ideas that were injected into my head by my left of Trotsky parents in the People's <laughs> Republic of Massachusetts. Well, that's, now so there's, that's my there, conditioning. There's the insight that we needed. All right. Now I can be your psychoanalyst, right? Now I understand why you have this fetishization of centrists that you have, because you're still traumatized by your like Eugene V. Debs childhood. You probably had to read about Eugene Debs in a, in a, in a cardboard. What are those things called? A board book. It's not, it's not being traumatized at all. It's actually just. No, I'm I'm teasing a little really bit. I, I'm not teasing completely, but I'm teasing a little. No, I totally agree. I see this in myself all the time. I, I think one of the really interesting insights from neuroscience around bias and tribalism is that you know our brains were not evolved for any of what we're doing today, or it's, it's all, all of the sort of in, neural infrastructure has been co-opted from its intended purpose. And according to what I've read, I'm not a scientist. Um, the parts of our brain that register moral disgust are actually the same parts that register physical disgust. So when somebody says something to you that you find morally repellent, you actually have a disgust response. And neurologically, it's identical to the, the disgust response, like if you saw rotten meat or something, you mm. know, something disgusting. And I had that I, – I just see that in myself all the time. Um, there is some stuff – so Jews right now are arguing over Representative Ilhan Omar – whether she's anti-Semitic or not, and what's anti-Semitic. And then meanwhile, the prime minister of Israel is saying stuff, which is pretty shocking for any prime minister to say. And so Jews are fighting a lot on social media. And uh, a friend of mine put out a point of view that I, I found really objectionable. And I had that desire that I think a lot of us have to like, you know, defriend or block or like I, I somehow couldn't even stand to see what he was saying. And I didn't even have to see it. I could just scroll by it. But right, there's the temptation that something is going to be really offensive. So like a car accident, I stop and look at it. And I felt like it would be easier to end our friendship, right, which goes back about 10 years at this point, uh, rather than just man up and scroll past or, you know, even read what he has to say, not comment and just accept that people have views that are, are stupid and racist. Um, <laughs> so it was just interesting to see that it was just really interesting to see that in myself, to see that disgust response and to see that it's alive and well. And this was not someone, This he's one of my Republican friends, um, but he is one of the compassionate conservative friends. He's a, he's a reasonable guy and he has, you know, he's, he's just misguided, but he has some, you know, he has, he's, he's a good guy in many ways. Um, and it was just interesting to see that. More 10% happier after this. 
The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep D. Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Let's end on something lighter. I don't know if it's lighter, but it's on your list, and it seems it seems like it might be lighter, but you'll unpack it for me, and we'll see. Meditation and sensuality. So Meditation and Sensuality was uh, the title of an essay I wrote in 2002 or 2003, which was for me at the very beginning of my meditation journey. And um, it's kind of you to mention it, since now it's a chapter in my new book, Jewish Enlightenment, which is coming out in September. I will say to our listeners that when Dan heard uh, that my next book was called Jewish Enlightenment, he burst out laughing and and mocked it for the fact that it was a tiny Venn diagram overlap of two already small circles. So <laughs> Did I actually laugh? <laughs> you did. And that was your comment. So coming from the author of a number one bestseller, it's certainly humbling. I'm, I'm uh, such a horrible not that, person. Not I that I need to be humbled even more by Dan, but – there I was. It's really further amazing. humbled. It's really amazing to be presented with evidence of what a horrible person. No, I am. it wasn't horrible. You're yeah. right. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to sell if I sell, you know, 
ten thousand copies, it'll be a miracle. So no, it's no one's going to read it, but that's fine. I I actually um my last three books have been small books. My most recent book I wrote under a pseudonym because I actually didn't want to be necessarily like I wanted only a few people to buy it, and I, I got what I wanted. <laughs> um, but uh, these last few books of mine have been really personal, and uh, it's been really um. It's been great. I'm ready. The next one I'd like to make a little bit bigger, but uh, it's almost – I didn't intend it certainly as a trilogy. The Gate of Tears is the first one and then is my book of poetry and and now Jewish Enlightenment. They're all at this sort of Jewish-Buddhist spiritual intersection. Uh, they're all three very personal. Gate of Tears is very memoristic, is a sort of devotional poetry to the divine as we as I understand it. Um, and now Jewish Enlightenment, which is a collection mostly of essays that I wrote early on in my practice, in my path, where I, I always felt that the best, my best writing on contemplative practice was that work. Uh, I started <laughs> another former career. Uh, I started the first Jewish online magazine, which was called Zeek, Z-E-E-K, uh, in 2002. And, um, just coincidentally, I mean, I started that magazine with, with uh, some friends, and uh, that's also when I got into meditation, which started in the Jewish world. And there was a freshness to those pieces while I was still figuring stuff out. Now I'm like old and hardened in my opinions. <laughs> but at the time, you know, I was like 30 and and just uh, finding my way in. And um, so medita- I didn't realize I didn't really talk about what meditation sexuality is, but that essay – is part of this book. Um, and looking back on it, it was thinking, is there a book here? And, and uh, I think my intuition was right. There's a certain kind of, um, I was really writing essays that no one else, I, I, I still don't know someone else who wrote those kinds of pieces. Um, starting out on the path, questioning assumptions. There's a tenderness that's there that I really love um, in myself. And uh, it's, it, it wasn't an easy time in my life. There's a lot of loneliness at that time, but there was, um, there's something so it's, it's like, there's something so magical about, uh, seeing again, those, those essays and sharing them with people. You know, it's an online magazine that is no longer publishing. It's hard to access that material. So I reordered them and, uh, did a little bit of editing here and there, but mostly left them as they were. Uh, and, um, that's what that title refers to, but that's not the subject that you were asking about. Well, no, I, I meant more like what is yeah, yeah, yeah. What so, is sensuality in the meditative sense? I was surprised when I wrote that piece, that essay in 2002, 2003, I was, I was surprised at how richer my sensual life had become as a result of meditation um, because I thought meditation was like spiritual stuff. But everything. So sensuality sounds like sex. I mean, it is large part, in large part about that sort of being more awake and aware and mindful and having better better sex, but also just better relationships, better connections, more intimacy. But not just that. Um, you know, more delight in music. Uh, I'm a music head and, you know, I just, there's paradise and, and um, more amazing experiences with art, being able to show up and be present and be moved. Um, it doesn't even have to be quote unquote spiritual art, but just art um, even things like food and, and just, you know, we've, I'm sure you've had folks talk about eating meditation here on the, on the podcast and certainly it's in the app. Um, but that's really true. Um, 
back. To, yeah, I mean that Warren Zevon quote is probably. I mean that's a great. I wonder if they did put it on his tombstone, but you know, enjoy every sandwich. You know, that's a tall order, uh, especially when we eat in a rushed way. But to have one bite of a meal that really is fully mindful and and I think I had thought that meditation was in the head, and I was shocked at how it was in the body as well. Our colleagues will kill me if I don't ask you about your current role at 10%. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you doing at the company? So I'm the wise guy. I'm the the editor of Wisdom Content, which means uh, I guess this is a nice time to say that 10% Happier is uh, doing stuff that's not just meditation on the app. So there'll be uh, recorded talks, like short sort of whether inspirational talks or kind of philosophical talks. Um, we'll be putting out a bunch of stuff as a sort of as a media company. So I'm working on that too. One of the delights, I mean, about 10% Happier is like, it's funny because most people at the company took this for granted, but I had a conversation today with uh, uh, someone who you've had on the podcast, Susan Piver, uh, who's going to be writing for the weekly uh, sort of newsletter email that, that I edit um, right now called Meditation Weekly. Probably change the name. Which we can people can sign up for. How? On 10percenthappier.com slash blog. Okay. Uh, the pieces are up there, are fully available. You don't have to subscribe to the app. And when I told Susan that we have over 800,000 subscribers and an over 10% open rate, she was flabbergasted. I mean, the numbers that you can reach with a platform like this are just astonishing compared to anything. I mean, Susan herself has a, a pretty big, she's a meditation teacher. She has a community kind of centered around her. She's, she teaches retreats. She's got a great gig going on and also largely online. But to get to those numbers is really an opportunity. And that's um, that's part of what really attracted me to that work. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, there's there's challenges in that, what you say and don't say. That's why we have to bleep out half of our conversation in order <laughs> for the powers that be at 10% happier to allow it to go on the air. But um, Well, that no, no, that's ABC News Disney <laughs> who actually own this podcast. I didn't mean literally bleeping. Yeah, yeah. I meant taking out that all that political stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, you're talking. You made a. You, you were not referencing the A word. Not the earlier. A word. You're talking about some of our discussions about what goes. Yeah, in yeah, the yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Politics. Uh, so no, I mean, but so that's those are the choices, right? To reach a broad audience is is the challenge. That's actually interesting is to find a way to do it with integrity. So it's very easy to dumb down mindfulness and co- create what's called McMindfulness, which is just kind of not transformative in any way. And look, if it helps people calm down, that's great. But you know, there's more on the table than that. Um, and so the opportunity, there's just, there's, there's an opportunity for something much deeper than just chilling out for a few minutes and then going back to life. There's an opportunity to transform life and, and back to the sensuality piece to enrich our relationships and our emotional lives and our physical lives in ways that for me, at least, again, I had thought meditation was fully intellectual and, you know, you're sitting still there and you're in your head and, and, um, so to find a way to communicate some of those deeper benefits, if that's the right word, um, in a way that's still accessible to a wider audience is actually a real opportunity. And it kind of goes back to the stuff we were talking about at the very beginning. Um, how do we bring together those – how do we bring together a serious contemplative practice, which I hope I still have, uh, with living in the world? Um, it definitely doesn't look – having a 15-month-old, it doesn't look like going on a lot of retreats or even sitting every day as I used to. Um, but I've seen it, 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 the interplay for me is constantly new and evolving and it hasn't settled into a kind of stasis that, 
that is boring. And part of that is this newness of trying to convey what's changed my life uh, in a way that it can change as many other lives as possible. And that means speaking in a way that's, that's, um, that, that communicates. Your view, if I understand it correctly, is before we were talking about, I asked, is it naive to think that meditation can help in our current political climate? And you said, no, it's not. I think it can help. But your view, if I understand it correctly, is that not only is that true, but it is also true that perhaps contemplative practice could have a salutary effect on the future of the species. Yeah, I really, yeah, I guess we didn't get to that one on the list. I think because it, it doesn't count as ending on a good note. Um we don't have to end on a good. I just meant not fighting with each other. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I think just uh, the last couple of years of of our history, not just it's not about Trump. It's not about he's the symptom, not the not the cause. You know, I I wonder if our we're not that advanced as a species, and and I really wonder now, being a parent, about the world that I'm leaving my child. And again, that's yet another of those cliches, right? But that, that that you and I have found to be true. And I don't know. I really just don't know if, on a species level, we have what it takes um, to coexist with our with the technology that we've created. Like we're clearly smart enough to blow ourselves up and end life, life on Earth. We haven't done it yet, but you know what? We believe we still believe so much stuff that's just manifestly false, and and we we jump to conclusions, and we're you know, especially the males among us are, too, are very quick to fight. And there's so much anger that we all, and I'm not in any way exempt from any of that. I don't know. And uh, I definitely feel as though contemplative practices of which meditation is one are, are, are the some of the only tools we have right now to keep from killing ourselves. And if that it's it's hard. That kind of work is hard. I, I see it as a kind of activism, but it's hard because it's so incremental. And you know, what about right now? And and so I still am a both ander. I'm still doing what about right now and in my other work uh, at the Daily Beast, but now focused primarily on on this meditation work. Um, it's hard. You just have to keep. But I just just believe it, and I don't believe it on faith. I mean, I believe it because I, on evidence um, that it does actually diminish some of the co- the root 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 causes of uh you know greed hatred and delusion and sort of the ignorance and the fear that people feel and how that fear turns into anger especially again for men not only but especially and how we're so quick to tighten up around stuff and so i i don't know i i, I might be pessimistic that it's enough to save the world but i do feel good about choosing to put my daytime energies in that direction. I, I don't know who told me this. It was somebody doing work around contemplative practice of some variety who was in an organization where the Dalai Lama came to speak to the team. And, and what he said was, you may not see the results of your work in your lifetime. Hmm. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, it resonates, but you know, as a confirmed uh, diehard liberal, I just don't know how many decades we have until the world f- looks very unrecognizable. I mean, the planet's still going to be here, but if we have one billion climate refugees in fifty years, uh, which is not inconceivable, certainly the civilization that we take for granted now won't be here. And it almost scares me as much 
what the reaction to that kind of refugee mass refugee crisis would be like almost more than the refugee crisis itself. So it resonates with me and I don't know. I hope we're all wrong. It's definitely every generation has always felt that the world was about to end. Um, over 70% of us evangelicals say that they believe that the rapture is going to happen in their lifetime. So it's not a left wing thing just about climate change. It's also on the right about the second coming of Christ. So that's part of human human also. Um, unfortunately, the folks on the climate side have a lot of science to back up their sense that the world is ending. Um, no, there's, it's funny. There's a, there's a Jewish teaching about that too, where they see an old man planting a tree that, uh, takes decades to bear fruit. And, uh, there's people are sort of mocking him. Like you think you're going to ever get the fruit from that tree. And he said, no, but hopefully my grandson will. So it sounds to me like the shorter version of your answer there would be both and. <laughs> the shorter answer, the shorter version of every answer I give is both and. Before we go, if people want to read your stuff, which I recommend they do, can you just remind everybody of the names of your, you've referenced some of your books, but not all of them. Can you just list your books and also where we can find you on social media and all any other sure, stuff? Sure. Thanks like for asking. So it's J. Michelson, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-O-N. And if you Google me, you get right to my site, jmichelson.net. For meditation and or Buddhist heads, uh, the two books that of mine that I'll, I'll name, I won't name all of them because there's, there's a bunch of them. Uh, one is called Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment. That's my favorite one. I think I know that's your favorite one. I feel like that's the one that got me this job. Thanks, Stan, for getting me a job. I didn't get you this job. I know you didn't get me the job, but if, if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be the company that I'd be working <laughs> okay, for. Okay, fine. Fair enough. You're the founder of my feast. <laughs> uh, you're the Karl Marx. You don't have to be the Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the other one Gate of Tears uh, Sadness in the Spiritual Path which like I said is kind of a smaller book of mine but um, I'm immensely proud of it uh, it was written in, uh, in the year after my mother died and uh, that's that's in there not directly um, but it's it's actually in large part about the sadness that we experience every day um, if we're attuned to life and, and its ups and downs and affirming that in a profound way. Uh, but what that really means, uh, I think certainly actually on, on 10% Happier, we talk about that a lot, just being present with negative emotions, but something almost too clinical about that. So a lot of the book is uh, almost attempting to be kind of lyrical in its um, embrace of what that really feels like. And that feels very authentic for me. Um, I'm so glad that luck or karma, which I don't really believe in either, uh, sent me into this world instead of the world of kind of uh, be happy all the time and create your own reality. And if you're happy enough, the world will be happy too. That makes me really sad. <laughs> me too, my friend. Uh, you don't make me sad, though. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's always awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Big thanks again to Jay. Time now, as we head toward the end of the show, to do our voicemails. We're going to do two, as we do every week. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. Um, I love everything that you've done. I've read all your books and um, have your app as well. My question is, have you ever felt really tired after all day meditating and the last thing that you want to do is be mindful? You just kind of want to listen to to music or, or watch Netflix or something? Um, I just spent an entire day at the New York Insight Medita Meditation Center, and I feel exhausted, and the last thing that I want to do is um, be mindful. So um, just curious 
if you face that and um, how you've um, over overcome a situation like that. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, my answer is yes, of course. I'm definitely still human. Um, I don't spend most of my days meditating. You sounds like you spent a day at a day long retreat at uh, the New York Insight Meditation Center, but it is not uncommon for me to be on a meditation retreat several days long. And absolutely, I feel cravings to do all sorts of things, including uh, binging TV. Uh, so I no judgment here and. This is true when I'm off retreat. Right now, uh, I'm recording this toward the end of a day, and uh, I'm definitely my mind. I can feel it turning toward wanting some uh, entertainment. Two things to say about this: one is it's totally fine to watch Netflix. Just because you're a meditator doesn't mean you can't watch Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is you want to watch or check social media. There, there's no, <laughs> there's no law of which I'm aware that precludes that. It's totally fine. You may want one of the benefits of being a meditator is you can start to see perhaps when you've you know, spent eight hours on Twitter and you have a headache and haven't eaten and you're angry at the world. So you might be able to jar yourself out of an unconstructive cycle of, you know, uh, compulsive consumption of social media or whatever it is you're consuming. But uh, there's no reason just because you're meditating uh, that that you shouldn't in, enjoy entertainment. The other thing I'd say is, and this is kind of annoying, if in fact you something is telling you that it that truly the right thing for you right now is not to give yourself a little mental vacation by uh, watching a little television, uh, if for some reason you feel like that truly is not the right move for you, right, what's the answer? Uh, I, this is annoying, but mindfulness to see clearly that this urge is arising and or fatigue is arising or frustration or doubt about the quality of your meditation practice and to investigate it. And then you will see that it will pass. It may come back, but everything passes. I mean, impermanence has a good side and a bad side. And the good side is that whatever you're dealing with right now, it will pass. It might not get better, but it will pass. And so, yeah, if you're in a situation where you really truly have considered it and you think right now is a time where you need more meditation or you want to have uh, you want to garden or have human interaction uh, or something that you feel is more wholesome than vegging out for a minute, then I would imagine then I would suggest that the way to, to deal with the, that urge is to investigate it mindfully. But again, just to recapitulate here, I don't think the desire and and the actual acting upon the desire uh, uh, to watch a little TV is in any, any way shameful, unnatural, um, or anything like that. And then if you if you you know have decided that you don't want to do it right now, then then I think mindfulness, annoyingly, is the answer because it it often is. All right, thank you for that question. Appreciate it. Here's number two. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is David from uh, sunny San Diego. Big fan of your work. Uh, I'm wondering about specifically the Buddhist aspects of your meditation practice. Having read your first book and listening to the podcast for a couple months, it's clear you went from being pretty skeptical, at the least, about the whole spiritual side of things to now referring to yourself, and I guess being uh, a Buddhist. I have two questions based on this. One, uh, how do you see your, your Buddhism, your Buddhist faith now, as affecting or interacting with your meditation? 
has it changed any of the fundamental aspects, or do you think being a Buddhist gives you a leg up on the meditation practice? Just interested in those kinds of interactions. And then secondly, uh, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for, well, someone like myself. Uh, I guess just kind of a, a waspy, generic American dude who doesn't necessarily buy into a lot of the, the church side, church-like side of spirituality, if you will, but is kind of interested in finding out more about Buddhism, having done meditation practice for about four months now. Are there any books or texts or people or processes or anything that you recommend as starting places? Yeah, so that's my questions, and uh, thanks for all you do, bro, and uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, first of all, just to be super clear here, I do not, while I I definitely do call myself a Buddhist, uh, I don't think of it as a faith or a religion. Um, It absolutely can be and is practiced as a faith all over the world, but the thing that has been said about Buddhism that I've said before on this podcast that I've very fond of, is that it's not something to believe in, it's something to do. So in that sense, I'm a Buddhist, just the same way I'm a journalist. Obviously, I I think I would argue that in my case, the Buddhism is more meaningful than the journalism, although the journalism is also very, very meaningful. So that's the first thing to know. It, it, it is not, you know, and the Buddha himself was a guy skeptics could line up behind. He, he you know, he did have, first of all, there's no God in Buddhism. He didn't have to my understanding, and somebody people can correct me on Twitter about this, some sort of creation myth um, about the you know the creation of the universe, and he did espouse some sort of metaphysical stuff, you know, karma, reincarnation, enlightenment. But he very specifically said, "You should not believe this just because I'm saying it. You should check it out for yourself." Well, that jibes very well with my history. My first of all, my personal inclinations. In fact, I was raised by scientists and also my history as a journalist. Check it out for yourself. I have no evidence to support personally that any of the aforementioned are true. Like, I don't know that if I do something right now, I'm, you know, uh, if I do something bad right now, I'm going to be reincarnated as a Gila monster or something like that. You know, uh, that that doesn't preclude me from practicing Buddhism. Uh, I kind of just set that off to one to one side because Buddhism is a treasury of practical information about the way the mind works. Uh, a friend of mine has, uh, Dr. Mark Epstein, who's been on the show a couple of times, has referred to the Buddhists as, as kind of putting together the uh, periodic table uh, for the mind. Uh, they've just uh, looked at it f- from every angle and come up with all these fascinating lists and uh, in a very sort of OCD fashion, and it's it's just it's I find it inexhaustibly interesting. But again, I don't I don't view it as some some sort of faith that I you know that I need to take some uh, logical leaps or set aside my skepticism that I in order to practice it. So that's just that's just an important. An important thing to say. Do I think it gives me a? How does it change my meditation? Does it give me a leg up in some way? Only in that you know, being open to uh, to learning more about what the Buddhists have uh, developed and have been saying for twenty six hundred years is just incredibly interesting and can serve as a a source of inspiration. It just keeps me engaged, uh, because sitting and meditating 
can sometimes feel very dumb, you know, just like noticing your breath coming in and out and then noticing that you're crazy because uh, because your, your distraction, you know, the, what your mind does when you uh, are distracted is, is often insane and then starting over and over and over again. That can feel a little dumb after a while. And so it's being in touch with the intellectual infrastructure of the practice is just super interesting. So how would you learn more about it? Let me just recommend two books to start. One is Buddhism Without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor, who I've gotten to know a little bit over the years. He's never come on this podcast. I would love to get him on this podcast. He's an unbelievably interesting guy, former Buddhist monk in two traditions, if I recall correctly, and um, but also a self-described atheist, which is also, a, I should say, or as he says, is a bit redundant because there is no God in Buddhism. But anyway, he's a pretty skeptical guy and very, very smart and wrote this slim volume called Buddhism Without Beliefs, which I think is a fantastic introduction to Buddhism. And then also uh, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright, who has been on the podcast. And he wrote an excellent book of, uh, from the perspective of, a again, a very skeptical science journalist, expert in uh, evolutionary psychology, who got deep into Buddhism in the same spirit that I've embraced Buddhism, you know, really from a um, Western scientific standpoint um, and and exploring the mind and trying to sort of hack the uh, habit patterns and uh, sort of negative aspects of evolution uh, like that, that we've inherited this mind that is constantly projecting us forward into the future or ruminating about the past instead of focusing on what's happening right now. So I recommend both of those books heartily, uh, and I think that would be a great introduction. So I really appreciate your question. Uh, sorry for the long answer. also want to thank on my way out here uh, the folks who produce this show, uh, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, and Grace Livingston. And thank you for listening. If you want to do me a solid, go and uh, rate or review us through whatever podcast store you consume this podcast. Also, if you want to talk about us on social media, that's always a plus. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.